The following is a production of Art Trap Productions, brought to you by the Gallifreyan Embassy and has been made possible by supporting subscribers and donations from listeners like you. This episode brought to you by Pachak Supporting Subscribers. Go to arttrap.com slash Pachak Supporter to become a supporting subscriber. Support the show and get extra content and other bonuses. This episode brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download at audibletrial.com slash Pachak. Over 85,000 titles to choose from for your iPod or MP3 player. This episode also supported by the Pachak Podcast Companion app for the iPhone, iPad, and iPod Touch, now in the iTunes App Store. Live from a post office box, it's Doctor Who, Pachak. The Gallifreyan Embassy presents Doctor Who, Pachak, episode 305, 305. This is Louis Trapani, and um, once again, I'm having some throat issues. I um, had a, a bit of a sore throat uh, today, so um, I'm actually not going to be talking too much in this episode. And you, you might be saying, well, how can you do a podcast and not talk? Well, um, I got other content, so we've got other content to bring you, uh, a couple interviews, and it's going to be a good show, nonetheless. And uh, so without any further ado, let's get on with this episode of Doctor Who Pachak. And first up is some news. I'm not going to really get too much into the news. Uh, we're going to discuss more about these news stories in our next episode. You know, and also, as I said, I'm not going to... I'm trying to hold back on talking too much. Well, as far as news goes... Uh, if you haven't heard already this, and I, I'm, I'm, the reason why I'm hesitating is because sometimes um, uh, stories like this, um, well, it's it's news anyway, so uh, I'm not going to, first of all, spoiler free, there's not going to be any spoilers, first of all, I'm avoiding spoilers, and uh, we're not going to put spoilers in this episode, but there have been leaked scripts from the new series that have leaked onto the internet, so... You should be aware, well, you know, just keep an eye out for any potential spoilers if you're avoiding spoilers. If you want to spoil it yourself and seek them out, that's your own prerogative. But um, I, for one, am not going to do that, and I don't want to be spoiled. So uh, there were, um, now I, I haven't really confirmed this yet, but to my understanding, there was um, there, there was a handful of scripts that, were, that, that got leaked onto the net, and... Uh, um, Word is, and again, this is unconfirmed, that it might have been through a um, a, G, a Google Drive account that um, wasn't locked down properly, and um, maybe, you know, it, it got out that way. And in addition, and further news, and related news, there's news that there's the first episode of Doctor Who, the new series uh, for 2014, has been leaked out as well. Now, this is an unfinished video of the episode, and to my understanding, it was um, it was a, a Miami server that was um, hosting it, which has been shut down since, and there was um, this was leaked through uh, BBC Latin America. Somehow, they must have had a working copy of, you know, a print 
of some kind, you know, unfinished version of it. Maybe I have no idea why he was there. What was, you know, um, could be any reason. Uh, maybe they were uh, previewing it for employees there. I, I don't know. Um, anyway, it's um, supposedly that's out. And again, I'm waiting for the full version, for the completed version rather. And uh, that's which is um, the release date. We have a date which I'm not sure if we have announced in our last episode, but that's August 23rd is when the new series begins with uh, Peter Capaldi as the Doctor. And today there's a trailer. The first uh, full-length promo trailer, promotional video that the BBC has released, and that's available, if you haven't seen it yet, on our site, you know, pachak.net. You can check it out there. Uh, it's about, it's just over a minute long, and um, if you're trying to avoid... All absolute, you know, every possible spoiler, then you might not want to check it out. I mean, there's nothing spoilery in there, but you'll see some familiar faces, you know, some returning villains, if you will, adversaries. So if you don't want to see that at all, uh, you might want to avoid the trailer. But really, I I mean, I don't think it's anything that you probably haven't seen already or, or that you're likely to see in the next month anyway through uh, promotional and other... Um, you know, material that will be released between now and then. So um, th those are the major stories. We're going to go more into this um, in our next episode when, um, when I'm not alone and we can discuss it further then. But I, for one, I, I'm going to st stay put and keep my nose clean of these uh, leaked material. I don't want to... Uh, I'd rather just enjoy it when it's been officially released finished you know doctor who is a television show so i'd rather see you know a script is just a tool for creating an episode it's not the episode you know there's everything else that goes into creating an episode besides the script I'm, I'm not belittling the script or the or the script writer but i'm just saying there's more that goes into it than just the script there's um you know everything from lighting lighting colorist um I, of course the acting um, direction, um, you know, the uh, cinematography, all that goes into creating an episode. So I'd rather see what the finished product is before I see, you know, explore elements that were used to create that finished product that would otherwise give away elements and surprises. So I'd rather just see the finished thing first. So I'm holding off and I'm avoiding all that material. And um, you may do the same. And um, you know, I'm sure the BBC, the Doctor Who production office would probably would like you to do the same because it's a lot of hard work that they're putting into it. And, you know, they, they want you to see the finished product and not something that's may not be showing their best work because it's not finished yet. All right. Well, last month was the 29th anniversary of the Gallifrey Embassy. Can you believe it's been 29 years? In that spirit, we have... Uh, and, and 29 years we started was 1985. That brings us, obviously, if you do the math, it's 20, 2014 right now. So it was 1985 when the Gallifrey Embassy started. We were a local club at the time in the mid-80s. There were many local Doctor Who fan clubs. And there were um, there was also few a, a few non-local clubs. In other words, national clubs. There was uh, the Doctor Who Appreciation Society... Um, there was, um, in, in the United States, there was the Doctor Who fan club of America. And 
they encouraged local clubs. You know, they knew that people that, you know, they were doing events, you know, throughout the country and, you know, they would travel to different areas of the country, some major metropolitan areas, you know, such as, you know, um, where major cities are, but also less populated areas as well. The guests would change accordingly. And, um, but they know they couldn't be everywhere and, you know, for everyone. So f that's where our fan clubs really filled in the gaps, you know, where uh, they can they could have local meetings. This was before, you know, the, um, the, the internet was such a common place in everyone's homes. So, it, you know, this really was the only way to connect with other Doctor Who fans. So, um, so yeah, we, um, the, the Gallifrey at that time, it was called the California Embassy of Long Island, since it was a local club to Long Island. And um, we had meetings in the two counties of Long Island, Nassau and Suffolk. So, uh, and they were alternate from, you know, one month it would be in one county, and the next month it will be in the other. To, um, to um, I mean, the trouble with Long Island it's, it, is that it's long. So those out on the east end still suffered because we didn't, we didn't get that far out east. You know, it's... Um, you know, we kept within, and also it, it came down to who would volunteer their homes to hold a meeting. Because uh, initially we did it in a hotel, and but that's expensive. We had to pay for that. And then meetings were done in private homes of, of members. So, you know, and it was up to, you know, the, the people would have to volunteer their um, their location for, for a meeting. So uh, it's it's not like we avoided any areas, but... Um, you know, it's we we went where where the uh, facilities were that we could hold a meeting. Anyway, so what we're gonna do? What we're having this episode? Uh, this isn't you know I'm not gonna be talking all about the California Embassy in this episode, but instead we are gonna go back in time to that time period to the mid '80s, and this is an interview with Ron Katz. Ron Katz is the co-founder of the Doctor Who Fan Club of America. Now, interesting little um, piece of information is here. I mean, this this interview dates back to then, maybe about uh, let's see. Well, the Doctor Who Pachak is now nine years old, so I'm trying to remember. Maybe if you probably were a few years into our podcast of Doctor Who Pachak, and I was trying to get a hold of Ron Katz to do an interview with him for the podcast for Doctor Who Pachak, and um, unfortunately, I came up with only dead ends, so uh, I don't know, you know, where he is today. But I would love to get him back on. On our show and and do some reflection back to the time, um, but you know I, I I did get in touch with several Ron cats, but not the right one. So this is the right one, and this is actually instead of reflecting back, this is we're gonna go back in time to uh, I, I believe if I'm not mistaken, I believe this was either conducted in maybe late 1984 or early 1985. I'm not sure. And therefore, when, you know, obviously when they speak about current Doctor Who, they're talking about uh, Doctor Who of almost 30 years ago. So without any further ado, let's get into our interview. This interview originally aired on the Chuck Rabb show. And this interview comes to you courtesy of Chuck Rabb, uh, who conducted the interview along with Barbara Shushuk. And this is, the this is it right here. Once again, this is Ron Katz who's the co-founder of the Doctor Who Fan Club of America. 
Broadcasting from a hotel room can be a little strange, but here we are in downtown Philadelphia. My name is Chuck Rabb. My co-host is Barbara Shushak tonight, and my guest is from the Doctor Who Fan Club of America, Ron Katz. Now, if Barbara will allow me to start this, I'd like to ask Ron how he ever got involved with the Doctor Who Fan Club of America. Ron? Well, Chuck, that's a... Um that could be a, a two-hour answer, <laughs> but I'm going to make it short. We really started out in, in May of 1981. We were at a sports car rally driving through the Rocky Mountains. It was a seven-hour trip. And we ended up in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, and uh, after a, a heavy night of celebrating our 32nd place win, I woke up the next morning and my wife said, you must get up and watch this crazy television show. And I said, forget it, you know, I'm, I'm gonna sleep in all day. And oh, you have to watch this television show and drink your coffee because we have to be at the pool in an hour. And so I start sipping my coffee and I watch this television show of which I had never seen before. It was, in fact, the third week of a series that the PBS affiliate in Denver, Colorado was broadcasting to uh, the state of Colorado and Kansas and Wyoming called Doctor Who. And I said, this is fantastic. It's fantastic. I had been in the clothing business, the men's clothing business for 15 years and had sold my, my interests and had retired at a very early age and um, was a collector of t-shirts. And I said, I have got to have a Doctor Who t-shirt. I saw in the show a, a great relief from television. I'm not a, a, a great television watcher. In fact, I'm, I'm really not a great science fiction fan. I'm, I am uh, a, a, a follower of, of humor, of, of satire, and, and specifically uh, theater. And I saw this as a terrific relief to what was going on in American television. I saw the understated, elegant quality of humor uh, and... and um, I really liked it, and I thought it was very gentle. Uh, and so I tried to get a Doctor Who t-shirt, and I called our PBS affiliate, and they said, well, here's where you can get one. And I, I sent my money into the fan club of, the, of national acclaim at that time uh, in the United States, and I never heard a thing. And in the meantime, Doctor Who was playing every Sunday morning in Denver, and little by little, a bunch of us would get together on Sunday morning. And the thing to do for that summer, the, the beginnings of this, of course, was in May of 1981. The thing for us to do was to get together every Sunday morning, go to the pool of my very good friend, Don Rourke, and go swimming, eat lox and bagels, drink Bloody Marys, and watch Doctor Who, and then sun ourselves all day. And 
we did this throughout the summer. Well, I had never gotten my T-shirt. Well, one day we decided that we would call the BBC, we being um, my friend Don Rourke's son, Chad, um, who I had known Don for some 17, 18 years and um, didn't even know he had a son. And we, we decided one day that we would call the BBC in London. I said, yeah, okay, I'm Ron Katz. I'm from Denver, Colorado and the United States of America, and I'd like a Doctor Who t-shirt. And I said, well, you should write away to the fan club, and, and it's the uh, Appreciation Society in the United States. And I said, well, you know, I've done that, but I've really had no response. Well, anyway, I said, yeah, send me a t-shirt and, and bill me. Well, they did. And I got the t-shirt and, you know, nothing against the BBC and what they were doing, but the t-shirt was lousy. It was just uh, inferior cotton. And of course, I'm, I'm kind of a snob in clothing and I'm a Virgo anyway, and I'm kind of picky about colors. So my, my friend's son said, geez, you know, I'm, he was a, an assistant professor at the University of Colorado and, uh, in, in product design, and we developed our own T-shirt. Well, that was fun. And my wife's in the catering business, and we were checking on a party and on our, our crew, and some people from our PBS affiliate saw me one time, and I had my Dr. Who T-shirt on, and they said, where did you get that? And I said, well, we kind of have a little fan club. You know, I don't know, we meet on Sunday morning and we'll watch your television show and just have great fun. And they said, geez, would you like to come on Channel 6 and help us raise some money? And I said, you mean like be on television and help you raise money? I mean, you know, just get crazy? And they said, sure. And I said, well, that sounds like great fun. I, and they said, well, can you bring your fan club on television? And, uh, you know, and I said, yeah, I think I think I could get the, the folks together. And they said, if you could, you know, it comes after Sesame Street and we really don't get much play, but it would be great fun. And we'd give your fan club some exposure. And, uh, of course, you know, at this time, honestly, we really didn't have a fan club, but we're still this bunch of crazy people. And... Um, they said, to, you know, if you could raise like $2,500, it would be fantastic. And a free T-shirt for Big Bird. <laughs> and a free, well, Big Bird was on the television program with us. <laughs> and uh, so we did. And we went on one Sunday morning, and I got all these people that were, you know, leeching off of us at, uh, with locks and bagels and Bloody Marys. And uh, I said, listen, I'm going to give you a T-shirt. You're going to be on television. You're going to have a great time. And we have got to raise money for Channel 6 because this has always been kind of my pet thing to donate to public television all my life. And I've done other things too, but I won't get into that with public television. And so we got on, and lo and behold, we raised $62,000. That's what we collected, $62,000 from what we raised. Not only that, I mean, that was fantastic. That was wonderful. But we then, that was on a Sunday morning. Tuesday, 
but but in between this time, my wife was ready to throw me out of the house. She said, this is your, I had been in retirement for a few years. And she said, this is what you're going to do next. You know, she was ready to sign the divorce papers. Tuesday morning, I went to my mailbox that we created and um, box 6024 Denver, Colorado. <laughs> 80206. <laughs> Big plug there. <laughs> oh, okay. I, pardon me. And uh, there were 800 and some letters with $5 checks in them that said, I think this is wonderful. I gave to Channel 6. I'd love to join your fan club. I'd like a T-shirt and so on. Well, from that point on, it, was, it, became, yeah, it became a business. And and what I as I we had discussed before Chuck um, before this this tape that I have done things in my life that that I have done for money and that have never gone anywhere and I have made a lot of money from things that have started from fun and 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 wonderful beginnings that that. Uh, turn out to make money. And this is one of those kind of things. It's a, it's a, been a terrific experience. I'm sure that it has been. My co-host is Barbara Shushak. My guest is Ron Katz, the co-founder of the Doctor Who Fan Club of America, the largest fan club of its type, watching on any particular basis daily across the United States on public broadcasting service, the BBC show Doctor Who. Barbara Shushak, I'm sure you have a good question. So let me put the mic your way and just talk right into it. Okay, now that you're established, what are some of the basic goals that you consider for the fan club? There are really three basic goals for our fan club that, you know, that have always been there. The primary goal is to raise money for public television. We, that's, that's one of our favorite pet things to do. Um, we, we've always, uh, as they say, blown the minds of public television by saying, listen, if you, if you put Doctor Who on and let us help you, we'll raise more money than, than you have in your wildest dreams. And 100% of the time, we've always done that. Um, the second thing that that we aspire to do is to spread the Doctor Who fandom throughout the United States. Um, we do this via a news publication uh, the, called the Whovian Times. Um, and that's what, quarterly? It's a quarterly newsletter. Mm -hmm. It's a quarterly newsletter. And uh, it's, it's published by Gannett Offset. Uh, it's a full color production. And it's, it's quite costly. And it's it's but it's, it's beautiful reading, and and it really informs the fans not only about the series, past, present, and future, but it gives it gives the fans some insight about the intrinsic uh, and the intimate happenings of the Doctor Who personalities from now and years past of the characters, and. Um, the third thing that we do is is uh, bring uh, festivals across the United States that uh, we we show Doctor Who tapes 
we we present Doctor Who guests, um, and I guess that's that's kind of tied into number two, you know, the f spreading fandom. But we sort of just promote the Doctor Who mystique. Okay, in your newsletter, you have many articles. Do you do them all internally by your own staff, or do you ever consider freelance writing? We started out by doing them internally. When we started out, our newsletter was really the state of the art. It was a very good newsletter. As we look at it now, um, that at the time of this taping, we're into volume eight. Uh, as I look back on volume one, it's so hokey, I can't even believe it. But, uh, and, and then tuning into volume eight, um, we have some freelance work. Now, by freelance, um, we encourage, and in fact, in this volume, we encourage fans writing in articles, short stories, etc. Now, of course, we get a lot, and artwork, too. We get a lot of people and, and, and children. By the way, the average age of, of the Doctor Who Fan Club of America member is 31 years old. But we do get a lot of children um, and, and, and kids writing in that's a, a fairly juvenile uh, mentality that we really can't use in our publication, which we would aspire to be uh, sophisticated. In volume eight, we have three articles, in fact, that were written on an exterior basis. One that's the first of a series it's called Who and I, and it's written this in volume eight. It's written by Ian Martyr, who played Dr. Harry Sullivan during the Tom Baker era of of Doctor Who, and uh, he also has written seven novelizations of Doctor Who. If I remember correctly, uh, was a lieutenant in the special forces of some kind of unit. Unit. That's yes, correct. Right. right. And um, Ian wrote us a beautiful uh, introductory uh, segment of Who and I that's a very intimate thing about his experiences with Doctor Who. Then we also have an article, um, which it's, it's an article, but it's really a letter written to us and to the fans of Doctor Who by the current producer of, of Doctor Who called John Nathan Turner. And um, it's, it gives us some insight and real meaty things of what's happening right now. Ian's article was what had happened in Doctor Who. Nathan Turner's article is what is happening, which means to most of the Whovians in America what is going to happen and Doctor Who. And then the third article was written by Jean-Marc Lafossier, who wrote two of the uh, most widely sold books in, 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 uh, out of the 100 and I think at this time three books of, 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 uh, published by W.H. Allen called The Program Guides Number 1 and 2. And he wrote uh, a, a a very revealing thing. Of, uh, so I think it was about a 1,700-word article about the making of the program guides. 
It's very interesting that you would have him do something. Those two volumes are volumes that are very highly recommended for any fan, whether they're brand new or whether they've been watching the program for a long time. It's considered a, like, must item are those two volumes. Right. Do you know whether they have any plans for a volume three to include Peter Davison and Colin Bakers? Yes, they do. It's really good. Everybody will be very pleased to hear that. Mm -hmm. Let me reiterate, I'm Chuck Rabb. My co-host is Barbara Shushuk, and I should mention that she is a publisher and producer of the local Philadelphia area Doctor Who newsletter. My guest is the national president and champion, co-producer, co-founder of the Doctor Who fan club of America. And talking to Ian Martyr, when he was a guest on the show, he was very revealing about his Doctor Who uh, uh, incidents and problems and uh, where he would probably fit in when he was finally hired as the Lieutenant Harry Sullivan. In his article with you, did he say much about how much fun it was to do Doctor Who? Not to spoil it too much for the readers of the Whovian Times, but... Um, yes, that was really the the um, basis for for Ian's time in Doctor Who. Um, when Ian came into the series, uh, Elizabeth Sladen had been a, a companion of of John Pertwee's as Sarah Jane Smith, a journalist, and made that transition from from John to Tom Baker. And Tom was was a, a, a terrific personality that um, came into the series and sort of looked to Liz, who's a, a, a great character. Uh, Sarah Jane Smith is a terrific character, and 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 Liz is a is a, a very strong woman and a, and a very talented actress. And Ian you know, came into the series with Tom. And um, the three of them had a terrific camaraderie. They had a lot of fun together. And I think as you look over uh, the fourth Doctor's uh, regeneration, uh, Tom Baker's Doctor Who, you'll see the... You know, uh, from 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 the very beginnings, his first show was called Robot. Um, that 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 Ian and and Liz and Tom really had a great great time together. Um, there were almost an inside joke the whole way along, uh, and as Tom went along. It got, it had its ups and downs until the final episodes where Tom really looked worn, and he was, um, and, and was very more, much more serious um, than in his beginnings. But Ian had revealed in his article of Who and I um, how much fun they really had, and, and they did have a great time, and it's, it's, it's very evident. In, in those first six or seven shows. I think it is very evident. Barb Shushuk, back to you. During the Whovian Festival tour in July 1983, which was your first, you had John Pertwee and Elizabeth Sladen. And it's taken this long for you to decide to do another tour. 
What are you planning on doing this time? Initially, you started by doing five cities across the United States with the same guests appearing in each city. Are you going to change that, or are you going to keep the same format? What do you plan to do with it? Well, the format, Barb, uh, just going back to that, and to correct you a little bit, you know, that we did, uh, I think it was 11 cities um, in July of 83. And we had the same two guests. It was a tough thing to do. It was a very difficult thing to do. We, we put on a fabulous show, but we traveled around the country. Now, you know, I, if, if, if any of you are living with someone, traveling with someone, you'll all know how difficult it is to spend 30 straight days and nights with the same people. And we had, a, we had our ups and downs with that festival tour. What we aspire to do now, the Whovian the, the, the Festival Tour of, of 1985 will be a little different. We kind of backtracked and decided, well, we're never going to do this again. It's just too tough. And so in 1984, we sort of just went with other people's conventions just to see how they did it, um, to see if, if there was any way that we could better ourselves. And not putting down anybody else's conventions, we really didn't find any conventions that were as good as ours. The productions were terrific. Um, we gave the fans really what they wanted to see. We gave them an intimate touch with the celebrities. We gave them terrific videos. Um, and a lot of fun at the conventions. Well, in 1985, we're going, we're, we're of course calling it the Whovian Festival Tour of 85, but we're going to have it a little different. We'll start out, first of all, it's a benefit. The, the entire 1985 tour is all going to be donated, all the proceeds and all the profits will be donated to public television. Um, everything that we do and every dime that goes from the gate, first of all, we, of course, have to pay the artists and their, their fees and, and their travel expenses and so on. Um, but after that comes out, everything else goes to public television. We will have a series of cities and a series of guests. We will, the, the, the more expensive guests will have at the better cities. The less expensive uh, guests will have in the lesser cities. In other words, the, the, the more expensive, for example, you're from Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a terrific Doctor Who city. So the, the, the most expensive guests that we have, the biggest draws that we'll have, will naturally come to Philadelphia and maybe four or five other cities like that. Um, and maybe the lesser um, the Doctor Who celebrities that that uh, um, cost a little bit less money, maybe they're, they're lesser personalities and so on, you know, and, and lesser draws, will have in, in a, let's say, a Gainesville, Florida, which is a fabulous Doctor Who town and will support something uh, from a Doctor Who ilk. Um, but certainly wouldn't, like a, a, a Tom Baker or a Colin Baker, would certainly deserve Philadelphia and vice versa. 
um, and, and, and one of the other personalities, I see you rubbing your hands there. <laughs> that sounds really good to me. So you're going to include some of the more rural areas that are maybe just beginning to start showing the program. I know that here in our area, uh, Bethlehem and Allentown are considered to be relatively rural, although they're not small cities. But their PBS station has just started, at, well, will start as of October 1st, to air the show for the first time. And people, I think, in rural areas will be glad to know that you're going to have some of the guests coming through. Oh, absolutely. You know, the, of course, you know, for financial reasons, the, the, um, the, the larger markets will, will get the shows on the weekends. But during the weeks, we'll go to some of the rural areas uh, and some of the, the smaller areas f that, that are just starting off with Doctor Who because we know it's a draw and we know that the people deserve it. And, you know, last, uh, in 1983, we did an experiment with Philadelphia. We came into Philadelphia with a, with a two or a three week notice and we did a Tuesday afternoon show here. It was one of the best shows of the tour. I was there. It was marvelous. Yeah, and um, it, it was it was wonderfully uh, done artistically, financially. It was it was a profitable show. Um, and on the other hand, we did a show on a Wednesday afternoon one time in Chapel Hill, North Carolina which was really kind of a podunk stop for us. We really, we stopped one night just to rest and, and uh, had them throw it on their, their, their public television station that night. And the next day, we had 500 people show up at a, at a Doctor Who festival. And um, it was great fun. And um, we raised some money for the public television station, and it told us something. I mean, you know, the, the public television station and the fans deserved it. And, and we plan to do um, anywhere from uh, 25 to 60 shows, major and minor, the, in, in 1985. When you had done it in 83, how many cities did you initially plan to take the tour to? as opposed to how many you wound up doing, like you said, in North Carolina? Well, we, we really planned on doing uh, six or seven, and then we wound up doing 11. So you're shooting for a higher number this time around with more gas and uh, more rural areas. Yeah, well, we were doing that because, you know, last, uh, last time around, we did, uh, we did it for one month. And this time, we're not going to do it for 12 straight months. Uh, you know, we kill ourselves. But we'll do it off and on throughout the year because our goal in this benefit is to raise several million dollars for public television. And, um, and really to, you know, the, the Doctor Who series is only shown in 40% of the potential markets at this time in the United States. And if we can stop, let's say, when we stop in a, in a Bethlehem, uh, Pennsylvania, and all of a sudden that might pick up two or three more rural areas. And that's really what we're about. I mean, you know, we want to spread this series 
um, and, and, you know, maybe even other terrific British television. You know, British television is, is probably, uh, at least with the public television uh, network, is it, the, BBC is the granddaddy of them all. They, they have the finest programming in the world. And um, that's kind of what we're about, you know. Along with the growing fandom, there is a growing desire for merchandise, and you have quite a line of merchandise. Can you tell us some of what you have to offer and what you plan to offer in the future for fans that they can have that has to do with the program? Well, at this time, we, um, you know, f again, we, we basically, our big business is done in T-shirts. We have a big line of T-shirt, and and we we produce T-shirts and sell T-shirts uh, a lot. And we can't really design T-shirts as fast as as the thoughts come into our heads, and and as fast as the BBC will license them for us. Um, but that is the backbone of our business: is the T-shirt industry. Um, on the other hand, we do a terrific business in badges, enamel pins, which are a very sophisticated type of a badge, um, is a big business for us. Um, I will give you a, a little insight that uh, I probably shouldn't, but I will. We're about to get into a publication of some some novelizations of Doctor Who that are done in, in full color pictorial editions that we're very excited about the prospects of that. Um, we do things like Doctor Who jackets. Um, uh, we have a terrific uh, stuffed toy that's a, a likeness of the canine character, uh, which was Tom Baker's favorite pet dog, computer dog. Um, we have on the boards uh, a wonderful Doctor Who game that um, is Get still lost both in time and space. I'm sure. Oh, we're, we're <laughs> definitely it will get you so lost in time and space. Um, but you know that there's there's literally right now, for example, our T-shirts we have 29 numbers of, of T-shirts. And that is what is licensed, and we've probably got another 15 on the boards. There are many fans that I've had an opportunity to talk to who are basically unaware that there are conventions or fan clubs or anything. They've maybe just started to watch the program, and they do need to know where they can go for merchandise. And the problem now is it's grown so much, and there are so many people designing products that they're a little confused. They need to know, you know, where the quality is coming from and what is available. So knowing what you have and that you are a well-established club, that is something that they have that they can hang on to. Mm -hmm. As a last question to you, Ron Katz, how big do you think this following will become for Doctor Who, the BBC television program? That's a very difficult question, Chuck, because, you know, I, I really think that we have only scratched the surface. First of all, Doctor Who, the series, 
is the longest running science fiction program in the history of the television media. It, they are now filming for their 22nd consecutive season. In the United States, really, we've had five years. I mean, it, it came in the mid-70s on UHF and came and went. But it's, it's you know, it really has only been going on for five years. And as I said before, there's, it's, it's striking 40% of the market. As it goes to the other 60%, you know, there's a whole revolution that, that happens in that 60%, not to mention what the kickback of, of the first 40% um, and, and, you know, experiences. So I really feel, as a businessman, I feel that, that if I were to say five years was realistic, I'd be in the ballpark. But I also feel that, and, and I'm saying that knowing that we Yanks uh, are, 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 are sort of, uh, of, of a fad-oriented society. But a Doctor Who is, 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 a, is a wonderful um, happening on television. It's a nice family type of a program. And there are not very many good family programs with real honest kind of um, feelings, humor, and, and, and taste, good taste. Um, generally, the good guy winning without use of violence. Well, the, the good guy wins without violence, and sometimes the good guy doesn't even win. I mean, you know, it's really theater um, done for television. And um, if, if Doctor Who happened for another 20 years in the United States, I really would not be surprised. And, and you know, as a businessman, I say, okay, I'm in for it uh, for the next five years. And if it happens for another two decades, I, I really wouldn't be surprised. I don't think it's really as much of a cult and as much as a fad as... I have read about in various and sundry magazines. I think that it, it can become a stable that the American public can tune in and out to and still have fun with for several years to come. My co-host has been Barbara Shushak tonight, who is responsible for the Doctor Who fan letter that's put out in the Philadelphia area. My guest, Ron Katz. From the Doctor Who fan club, Ron, we should mention your uh, other co-founder. Well, my other co-founder, uh, that uh, again was uh, Chad Rourke. But one thing that I would like to say that um, you know we have here, you know, I'm 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 sort of the guest of the show, and and Barbara's is a co-host, and she has a local fan club. And I'd like to say something about a difference between the national and the local fan club. Sure. Our club is, is the largest Doctor Who fan club in the world. I would like to think that we're the best. Of course, I'm the co-founder. I would say that, of course. Well, why not? Sure. It's, it's our show, isn't it? But the, 
there there is the phenomena of a local fan club and i talk to barb from time to time and and i help her out and 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 she helps me out and i think that you know as a closing statement i would really encourage we get you know and at who quarters we we have a toll free line chuck that's 1-800-CALL-WHO that works at certain hours of the days. And, um, you know, we get a lot of inquiries about people saying, how can I start a local fan club and should I start a local fan club? And I always say yes. I, I really encourage that because the local fan clubs, especially like Barb's fan club here uh, in, in your area, um, really gives a one-to-one -one basis, a nice newsletter, and a, and a, and a personal touch that um, yeah, as much as I would love to do on a national level, I can't. And I think that, you know, I, I wholeheartedly congratulate Barb because, you know, when Barb started this whole thing, I know that she was, whoopee-doo, let's do this whole thing, and it's really lots of fun and so on, and she didn't have any idea, and I really didn't want to tell her how tough it was going to be. But the local fan clubs, if you know of a local Doctor Who fan club or want to start one, I, I congratulate you and, and, and hope that you do it, join it or start one because it's needed in the country. And I think that anybody listening to this interview that is associated with the public broadcast service or any of its affiliates would agree with me because the National Fan Club, Doctor Who Fan Club of America, has helped out a great deal financially. But the unsung hero has been the local fan clubs. They're the ones who've really done a great job. I want to thank Barbara Shushuk and Ron Katz for joining me tonight. By the way, Ron, as soon as you get together your working TARDIS, the multi-dimensional time and space machine, I would love to uh, either borrow one for a weekend, which could be millennium long, or uh, get back to you for a little trip through time and space. We can put it right on tape. We'll take a spin, Chuck. Sounds great. Thanks again. It's been fun. It certainly has been fun, and I want to thank Chuck Raub for uh, uh, providing this interview for, to allow us to uh, share it with our listeners of Dr. Who Pachak. Also, um, of course, thanks Chuck Raub and Barbara Shushak for the interview, for doing uh, co-hosting um, of the interview of Ron Katz, and of, of course, thanks to Ron Katz uh, for his time and, um, you know, providing um, this interview for, for Chuck Rabb and, and in turn for us. So um, for those that are interested in the Doctor Who Fan Club of America, unfortunately, it doesn't exist anymore today. So if you're looking, don't, don't write that P.O. box, <laughs> the P.O. box that was mentioned there. Uh, I don't know who, who has that address now, but uh, the Doctor Who Fan Club of America, uh, unfortunately, is no more. There, um, if you are in North America and you are looking for like a, a national club, there is the Doctor Who Information Network, which uh, is out of Canada, and they're the longest um, national club around in North America. They've, um, if I'm not mistaken, I believe next year is their 35th anniversary. Um, I could be wrong with that, but I, I, I believe 
that's the case. So, because um, I, I think they're about four or five years older than um, the Gallifreyan Embassy. So, um, anyway, uh, check that out. They're, they're still around. I, I, I believe it's dwin.org is their address, but I, I'm not sure. Uh, you might want to Google it. But, uh, but if you're Googling uh, Doctor Who Fan Club of America, um, I'm sorry, you probably won't get far with that. Uh, as far as um, because they, you know anything current at, at least, because um, they're not around anymore, and um, you know after Doctor Who was very big in the eighties here in the states, but unfortunately after the series had um, you know a- after the BBC controller at the time had its way and eventually the series was no longer in production, I think interest um, had waned a bit. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, um, there were forces at work that impacted the quality of the show. And uh, um, even though the um, the production team was, was, you know, doing its best with what they have to work with. Um, but anyway, I, I think at the time, fandom started to wane a bit here in the States at that time. And um, also, in the, it, it was the late 80s. Um, there was other science fiction that was competing for attention. You know, there was Star Trek The Next Generation on, on television in the States. And, um, you know, we, we were entering the, the 1990s. And there were a whole host of other science fiction television that was trying to uh, catch the fire that The Next Generation had. And there, Star Trek The Next Generation was very, very successful as a syndicated science fiction show in the States, which hadn't been done before. I mean, outside of the original Star Trek series, but it wasn't first run in syndication. It proved to be successful um, afterwards in syndication, and which led um, them to do The Next Generation in that way. You know, instead of going to, uh, you know, NBC, ABC, CBS... Uh, Fox or whatever at the time, um, they were syndicated, uh, first-run syndication. And so there were lots of other science fiction shows uh, entering that period, uh, including other Star Trek series. You know, you had... Um, did, no, when did Deep Space Nine started? I don't really recall now what, what year it was. I think, wasn't it like late 80s? I don't know. Or maybe it was 91? I don't know. I, I think Voyager was 94. Anyway, this isn't a Star Trek podcast, so... <laughs> um, anyway, so... Uh, once again, that was Ron Katz, uh, co-founder of the Doctor Who Fan Club of America, which was a national organization. They produced the publication, The Whovian Times, I believe it was called. I was a member. Yes, I was a member. Uh, I have... Um, well, I... After Superstorm Sandy, I'm not sure what I have anymore, but I, I did, um, you know, I, I had the membership card, um, there were badges, of course, t-shirts, um, <laughs> uh, there were, uh, I'm just trying, outside of the newsletter, what else they had, uh, and, and of course, as, um, as mentioned in, 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 ooh, as mentioned in the interview, there were, uh, festivals, I, believe I'm, if I'm not mistaken maybe the there was a Katie Manning one in Trenton that they did I'm not sure if it was I there, there was definitely a convention with Katie Manning in Trenton New Jersey but I'm just trying to remember if that was a if that was um 
if that was put together by the Doctor Who Fan Club of America or not. I, 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 my memory says yes, but I'm not 100% sure. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to be back with another interview. This one, more current. Or you can say, very recent. Hi, this is Graham Harper, and you're listening to Doctor Who Podshot. In the preceding interview, Ian Martyr, actor Ian Martyr, the late actor Ian Martyr, was brought up, uh, who played Harry Sullivan in Doctor Who. Uh, not only did he play Harry Sullivan, but he also wrote some Doctor Who novelizations, as it was mentioned in the interview. So that's going to be, well, that, that's going to lead us to our selection for our audiobook selection for this episode of Doctor Who Podshock. As you know, Audible is the premier provider of digital audiobooks. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from in every genre, including thrillers, business, romance, comedy, sci-fi, and more, including Doctor Who. Audible titles will play on your iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices for listening anytime and anywhere. And for you, listeners of Doctor Who Podshock, Audible is offering a free, a yes, a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial so you have a chance to check out their service. If you decide it's not right for you, simply cancel it and you keep your free audiobook. To download your free audiobook, simply go to audibletrial.com slash podshock. Again, that's audibletrial, one word, audibletrial.com slash podshock for your free audiobook. And if you're driving and you can't go to that URL right now or you can't write it down, simply go to podshock.net. There's links to it there. Now, our selection, as I was saying before, is a novelization uh, audiobook that was written by Ian Martin, uh, Ian Martyr, and it's narrated by John Leeson, who plays K-9 in the series. And this is Doctor Who and the Rebos Operation. Now, this is a, a special story in so that it's the first of the Key to Time series, where the Doctor has to collect the six, seg the six segments to the Key to Time. It's also an important story because it introduces, well, the Doctor <laughs> gets, uh, encounters another Time Lord, or shall I say Time Lady, and this introduces Romana into the series. This is the Rebos operation. Also, it's another important story because it, um, I believe they, they didn't show up in, until the stories the White and Black Guardians are introduced in, um, in, this, in this story arc, I should say, in the Key to Time series. So uh, once again, this is narrated by John Leeson. You'll recognize his voice as K-9, though he doesn't read, he doesn't narrate it as K-9, though, of course, during the K-9 dialogue, of course, you're going to hear John Leeson doing K-9. But otherwise, he's we've interviewed John Leeson. He's a great guy. Um, you know, you can go back to one of our Doctor Who Pod Chalk episodes. I, I don't remember the number offhand and uh, listen to it. It's a great interview. Um, but anyway, so here's a little bit from the Rebus Operation. K9, he called, staring at the door, which was ajar. Then he shrugged. And after frantically fumbling in his cluttered pockets, took out a tiny silver dog whistle and blew several blasts. His cheeks bulged and his eyes popped with the effort. 
The whistle made no sound, but immediately there came a distant whirring and clattering. And seconds later, the door was pushed wide open. Into the chamber trundled a curious dog-like creature with metal body and head, fiercely glowing eyes, and eagerly revolving antennae in place of ears. The mechanical hound stopped with a jerk, cocked his head sharply to one side, and announced in a rasping voice, A less extreme ultrasonic signal is quite adequate to effect summons, Master. The tall figure glanced at the tiny whistle in his hand. I'm very glad to hear it, canine, he panted, dabbing at his flushed face with a large red and white spotted handkerchief. Next time I'll be sure to... Your statement not understood, Master, retorted the robot, his circuits chattering busily. The signal is not audible to the human ear. The tall figure wagged a warning finger. I am not human, he said firmly. Kindly remember that. You are the doctor, Canine replied. And according to my databank, that name is of human origin. The tall figure crouched down and tapped the robot on the muzzle. I didn't call you in to be argumentative, Canine, he murmured scoldingly. Canine's eyes dimmed and his antennae drooped. Slowly he lowered his head. His circuits went quiet. The doctor sprang to his feet, cramming the battered hat on the back of his riot of curly hair. Listen, I've got a surprise for you, he cried with a delighted smile. We are going to take a little holiday, just the two of us. There was a pause while canine circuits buzzed into activity again. Holiday, he rasped, raising his head. Why not, the doctor said, striding over to the console and eagerly unrolling the chart. I thought we might pop over to Orkinos and bask in one of its suns for a few... At that moment, all the lights in the central console blacked out, and the systems went dead with a dying whine. The doctor uttered a cry of dismay and stumbled round the console in the eerie glow from Canine's eyes, frantically flicking switches and... Again, that was Doctor Who and the Rebus Operation. That could be a free audiobook. It doesn't have to be. You can select any that Audible has to offer. Uh, once again, to get your free audiobook, simply go to audibletrial.com slash podchock. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash podchock for your free audiobook. And welcome back to Doctor Who Podshock. You really never left Doctor Who Podshock, did you? So um, even, um, I think even our Audible ads are kind of groovy. So, um, if, well, if you're a Doctor Who fan, that is. So as promised, we have another interview. If one interview wasn't enough for this podcast, we have yet another. This one comes from one of our UK correspondents. Nick Joy was recently at the University of Chichester, where the Department of Media hosted a one-day event dedicated to the works of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. After a day of talks, lectures, Q&A sessions, the workshop members performed a full gig, and Nick 
caught up with them to discuss their work on Doctor Who and their upcoming new album. This audio was recorded on site, so apologies for any distracting background noise, but we hope that it's worth, it's more than um, compensated for the unique chance to hear from four of the pioneers of the Doctor Who's soundscape. First interview is with Peter Harrell. Peter was a member of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop from 1974 to 1998. In 1980, he marked the beginning of the John Nathan Turner era with a new version of Doctor Who theme music using synthesizers. He discussed his approach to this daunting task. My rule of thumb was I want people to listen to this and not know how I've done it. I didn't want anybody listening to this saying, oh, that's, that's a sound, so I can buy that and make that sound. So there was, there was nothing on there that wasn't severely manipulated and treated. Even the bass line actually was played on the CS80, but it had two reverse bass notes in front of everything that took a lot okay. of doing. Subconsciously, people are going to be saying, oh, what's that, what's that? What's that? You know, that's what I was interested in. What I'm interested in, if, if, if it's obvious... Oh, you know, obviously, the OEU, everybody knows that had to be there. Yeah. That was done on the ARP. Um, but there's lots of other stuff going on, and I just didn't yeah. want it to be obvious. Yeah. I mean, how much of a sacred cow was, was that Doctor Who thing? It was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was. <laughs> Especially as there'd been a very um, unsuccessful attempt to redo it. And the synth, the synthesizer turned up. That was a few years previous. And that hadn't worked. So infamously, there is one example of it, but it was rather weak sounding. It didn't work very well. Um, so I had that to contend with as, as a sort of spectre, you know, the fact that that had already been done. Um, but I mean, one way around it was to... The other rule I set myself is, is to try and use everything we had in the workshop in all yeah. the different rooms. So I didn't actually make it all in one place. Did the middle eight runs, the tinkly bit, yeah. in Paddy's studio. Uh, did the bass in my studio. I was doing it all over yeah. the show with all different bits. And that paid off, actually, because it gives it a sort of... Um, textured sound because there are so many different sound sources you know one idea leads to another and I follow that through and there's some blind alleys that you go down and regret and go back again but most of the time things are progressing gradually and it's sort of like a even in digital form on a computer my files look like impressionist paintings there's little bits and pieces all over the show um, even on a sequencer you, you were at the Royal Albert Hall for the Doctor Who prom this year yes, I mean, picture up there I've oh made, right yeah I mean, was that the biggest audience you sort of played live in front of? Or? Of course. My Honestly, that is just such a memorable experience. I mean, you literally looked out and every single person had the same expression on their yeah. face. It was, and, and, and kids on their shoulders oh, yeah. looking exactly the same. Mark and I were enjoying this show even before we played a note, you know, in rehearsal. 
this is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And they really do know how to do it. And ben, ben Foster, uh, oh, yeah. famously is an early student of mine. Oh, is he? Brilliant. And it was a really nice reunion. Yeah. Really enjoyed meeting him again. Glastonbury. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds, it sounds, that could be a tough gig. Yeah. Or, yeah. or is it? Don't even go there. <laughs> I, was say, I just want to say, whose bright idea was that? Or, or if it... It's his fault. <laughs> um, I, I did go through a period of being very, very nervous yeah. playing live. Okay. Because, I mean, I, I spent a lot of my career in the studio. Yeah. And although I started way back doing some live stuff, yeah. I was long since forgotten. So, I mean, but I, I, I've actually got a bit used to it now. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not bad. And I think by the time we get to Glastonbury, I should be up for it. Actually. Oh. As soon as you realise that everybody there wants to be there, yeah. they haven't actually come along to find fault. Yes. They actually want to be there. And that is actually quite a click moment in your brain, really, when you're, when you're nervous about performing. They actually want to, want to be there. Yeah. So, yeah. There's a lot of interest from young people. Yeah. Um, but, of course, there's the hardcore fans, Doctor Who fans, and there's another set of people who are actually fans of the, of the Radiovonic Workshop, yeah. per se. We're writing new material. We've got quite a lot of new material. In fact, about half the concert is new material and half old. Um, and so, you know, you're looking at an album's worth creeping up. And we will have a new album soon. The album is probably going to be called Electricity. There's a title track about electricity. So that's about power and force and things. And yeah, it's just like depends on the subject material. I mean, there is in the offing, uh, and it'd be interesting to see what the look on your faces, but there is a new version of the astronauts. We don't, we play oh, wow. the old version yeah, yeah. in the concert currently, but there is a new version that has a vocal line. I think if we purposely tried to make creaky stuff, yeah. that would be not a good idea. Almost parody. That would be parody, yeah. No, we've got to do it for real, and we've got to do it as well as we can, just the same way that we always used to. But if it comes across like that, or comes across nostalgically or whatever, that's to do with the people listening to it, yeah. I think. You're always actually on the lookout for something. I mean, I'm not interested in writing anything that seems to be like something else. I mean, I, in a way, it's almost an affliction, really. I absolutely detest it. So I've always had this interest in... If it's not original to me, I'm not interested. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it can be a bit irksome sometimes, you know, because I just would rather spend hours trying to make something myself than get it off the shelf. So I've just always had that sort of attitude, you know, and I think the same thing applies now, actually. So thank you, Nick Joy in the UK for this interview, as well as, of course, Peter Howell for his time and uh, his insights on the Doctor Who theme and his version of it, as well as uh, that the new album of, um, that, that he spoke of. So this is going to uh, actually this is going to round out this episode. We do have feedback. Those that did send in feedback, we do have it and we'll, we'll get your feedback on the next show. Um, I do want to do a, a, a just a, a quick plug, if if you will, if you're listening to this episode before um, or uh, before July 22nd, um, and if you're interested in a workshop on mobile photography, I'm doing a workshop on mobile photography, which, uh, which is uh, actually taking place on Fire Island. So I know that's probably out of the way for most of your, our listeners, but if you happen to be in the area. Um, to, for more information about this and how to uh, apply to this, you know, to join this workshop, 
Uh, this is actually being done through the Fire Island um, Adult Education School there. So it's, you know, it's, it's all being handled through, as far as admission goes, it's all being handled through, um, you know, through the school. Uh, you can go to uh, arttrap.com and find out more information there. And you'll find a link there to the school's uh, flyer and how you can enroll in the workshop. Once again, that's taking place on the 22nd of July, 2014. I may be doing more workshops in the future, so stay tuned for more information on that. And apologies for uh, this episode once again. This is a little late in coming to you. It's just been, I don't know, it, I'm, I'm, I sound like a broken record and I do apologize, but it seems to be like I'm just constantly chasing my tail and, <laughs> and, and chasing Murphy's Laws. Uh, thanks for hanging in there. We'll be back next time with your feedback and with more with Doctor Who news and information and interviews, reviews, all goodness relating to Doctor Who coming your way in the next episode of Doctor Who Podshock. Until then, cheers, everyone. You have been listening to Doctor Who Podshock, presented to you by the fan-run GallifernMC.org. Doctor Who is owned and trademarked by the BBC. Doctor Who Podshock is not affiliated with the BBC in any way. Doctor Who Podshock theme music by Jeff Smith at thejeffsmith.com. This has been a production of Art Trap Productions and has been made possible by supporting subscribers and donations from listeners like you. This podcast is also supported by the Podchock Podcast Companion app now in the iTunes App Store. Visit arttrap.com for more information on this and other podcasts. Really, Master? No, 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 you're not coming. You stay here. Entreat, Master. No. Are they good? No.